You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 13, or if you're in the Pew Bible, it's uh, page 819. And uh, we're continuing in our passions and parables, uh, or parables and passions series uh, as we prepare for Easter. And today, speaking about a sermon entitled, We're on a Treasure Hunt. So I don't know if you've ever been on a treasure hunt uh, personally, uh, if you've ever had the experience of stumbling into treasure, uh, but that does happen to people from time to time. Uh, I've never had that privilege or that surprise. Uh, I think the closest thing I find to treasure happens in two ways. One, I put on an old pair of pants and I find $20 in the pocket that I didn't know was there. So it actually was my money, but because I found it again, it feels like a treasure. Here's the other one that's a treasure hunt that I go on every week. It's called finding a parking spot at Costco. (laughs) That is a treasure hunt. But I actually, I believe I have the gift of finding parking spots. So some people, you know, they get into Costco and they just park far away because they go, there's no hope. I'm a man of faith. I go to the front. (laughs) And you can ask my wife, I bet 80% of the time I will find a parking spot. And every time I do, she wrote, she goes, I don't believe it. Again, I said, you should be grateful. I said, this is why you married me. It's because I find parking spots. That's my great contribution to our married life. Well, some people do find treasures. And in 2014, there was a couple who was walking around their property in California, taking their dog for a walk, which they did every day. And they took the same route around their yard every day. And they walked by a tree. They walked by every day. But suddenly this day, I don't know if it had rained and there was some erosion or what had happened, but they saw an old tin can sticking up. So they go to examine the old tin can and they find out that there's another seven tin cans buried with that one. And then they find out that there are 1,400 gold coins American gold coins in those tin cans, worth $10 million. So it's on their property, it's theirs. $10 million, and they walked there day after day. So that was buried there over 100 years. No one found it. And these folks stumbled into it one day. So sometimes we stumble into treasure. In 2012, two guys, Reg and Richard, were their treasure hunters. That's what they regularly did. So they, they, were, they were detectors, right? So they get out their metal detector, you know, and they got the headset on and they're looking around. Like sometimes you're on a beach somewhere and someone will be doing that. Usually what do they find? A few coins and usually car keys, right? But these guys were on the island of Jersey. The island of Jersey is uh, close uh, to the uh, French coast in the English Channel. And so it would have had lots of history on that island. It's nine miles long, three miles wide. They thought, let's go treasure hunting there. And while they're there, they find a few uh, metal coins. And as they start digging, there's more and more and more. And it's a huge number of coins they find there. And these were Celtic coins that were over 2,000 years old. So they uh, get it evaluated. And the best guess is that they're worth about $17 million. Now, here's what happens if you find something on someone else's property. In most countries, I guess the law is if you have permission from the landowner, it's a 50-50 split uh, of the treasure that is found between the landowner and the ones who found it. If you're on government property like these guys were, well, good luck. Because you're going to have to negotiate with whoever the government is and uh, whatever may happen. But some people stumble into treasure 
And some people search it out, which is the point of the two parables we're going to look at today. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So two stories, two parables uh, that Jesus is telling that says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, the, now when I read these, it, it raised a few questions in my mind. I'm thinking, okay, why is he telling us about the kingdom of heaven? And obviously he's saying, if it's worth more than everything I own, or it's worth selling everything I own to get it, it's obviously incredibly important and valuable. So what is it? And why is it so valuable? The other thing I think that as I was reflecting on, uh, on treasure, I think we all are treasure hunters. What do I mean by that? I think all of us go through life hunting for treasures, hunting for things we value. So it might be a career. It might be um, a certain job. It might be social status. It might be a level of security. There's, certain, there's treasures that we value, things we pursue. And for those things that we highly pursue and highly value, we are willing to give up other things to get that end goal. So for instance, often in education, we say, well, I believe the treasure of the degree and the career I will get, it's worth going into debt for because the outcome will, will give me the money that I need to pay off my debt. It's worth moving for. I know when I was in my education years, I grew up in Winnipeg, but for education, I went, I moved to Colorado, I moved to Langley, and I moved to California to pursue my education. So I was willing to give up living at home. I was willing to take on debt. Uh, we, were, we moved together to California. So we were willing to give things up to pursue the treasure that we thought we wanted. And that's what all of us do that at some level. We're all treasure hunters pursuing the things we value and we're all willing to give up some things to pursue the treasures we value. Some of you here, many of you here, have moved, either you or your parents or your grandparents, moved from other countries because you valued what you thought was a better way of life, greater security for your family, perhaps higher standard of living, or getting away from persecution, which is exactly the story of my family. They had lost everything in the Ukraine, went to South America, came to Canada, and then I was born. So we all have treasures we pursue. And Jesus is saying here that the kingdom of heaven is the greatest treasure that we can pursue. It's the greatest treasure hunt we can be on. It's the greatest treasure we can find. Now the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, those words are interchangeable, is something that Jesus says, this is the most important thing that I'm going to teach. So it's the center of Jesus' teaching. It's, it's how he began. It's what he refers to constantly. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus refers to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven 61 times specifically. And then the parallel passage uh, is uh, another 85 times. And two times in John, he speaks about it. And John the Baptist, as he's preparing the way for Jesus, says, repent for the kingdom of God, or sorry, the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus, in his announcement, as he begins preaching, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. And believe the good news. Jesus taught the disciples. He says, your kingdom has come. 
in the Beatitudes, which Jesus is talking about how we are to live. In Matthew chapter 5, he's talking about the fact that for those who are poor in spirit, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first part of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. The last one where he's talking about those who are persecuted for his name's sake, the reward is the kingdom of heaven. It's the greatest reward that Jesus promises those who follow him is the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about it repeatedly. In the Last Supper, he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is constantly referring to the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. So he says the greatest treasure that we can find is the kingdom. So what is the great treasure that Jesus is describing? Because the, tre- the kingdom can sound nebulous. It can sound unclear. It can sound fuzzy to us. Because the kingdom he's thinking about is different than the kingdom we think about. When we think about kingdom, we think about a physical space with borders and laws and a king, and it's very concrete. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Well, in some ways. So let me describe to you God's kingdom in a few minutes. And I'm referring to some work by biblical scholar uh, Scott McKnight, who's done some great work in this area. And he says, to be, uh, to be a follower of Christ is to be a member of God's kingdom, which means you are a citizen of the king, kingdom, which means you have come under the rule of the king. So this great treasure, the kingdom of God, has to begin with having a king. If it's a kingdom, obviously it has to have a king. So the treasure has a king. And that king now must rule. For the kingdom and the king to be meaningful, that there must be a rule for the king. It's not like Queen Elizabeth over Canada, which is a figurehead. We don't look to the queen to rule. Right? She's a figurehead. But he says, no, if there's going to be a kingdom and a kingdom of heaven, then the king must rule. How does the king rule? Well, the king rules, King Jesus rules, by saving and by governing. He rules by saving and by governing. So what does that look like? How did the saving happen? Well, the saving happened because he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. He paid the price for sin that we were to pay. And he says, no, he took that on himself as a perfect sacrifice. He paid the price for our sin. He removes our shame. He conquers our fear. That's the saving work that he did. That he, did. he also was victory, victorious in battle because he fought Satan for the kingdom. Satan, who wanted to destroy the king and the kingdom, was defeated. So Jesus won in, in, by his sacrifice and by his victory in battle through his resurrection. That's the saving work. And the governing he does is that all those who are in his kingdom submit to his rule. Submit to his leadership, to his sovereignty over us. We align our lives with his teaching and his direction. That is his governing. Now, who is he governing? Is he governing a place or what's he governing? Often, as I said, when we think of kingdom, we think of physical places. But whenever kingdom is referred to in the Bible, it's talking about a people, not a place. So in the Old Testament, it's the the people of God in the Old Testament is the people of Israel. In the New Testament, the people of God is the church. It's God's people who are under his rule, who are part of his kingdom, is where God is ruling through Jesus. The ones who are following and doing his will. The ones who say, your priorities are our priorities, Jesus. Your focus is our focus. Your will is our desire. 
Because every king, every ruler wants his people or her people to follow the, not just the law of the land, but the intention of those laws. As I was preparing for this morning, up on my, uh, my news feed came some recent news from China as they had destroyed more churches and imprisoned some more, some more Christians. And as I was reading some of the information, I came across a unique uh, title or a unique event that happened in 2014. And the conference that happened in China in 2014 was entitled The Sinicization of Christianity. I'd never heard that word before. Uh, so I had to look it up. And I have to apologize to all our translators right now because they're all scrambling, trying to figure out how do I say sinicization in whatever language. Basically what that means is that Christianity in China was, is supposed to be subservient to the values and priorities of the Chinese Communist Party. So you can be a Christian as long as the party is more important. You can be a Christian as long as the values and behaviors and expectations of the party is more important. There are actually many countries that operate that way. And in Canada, we're seeing an increasingly, uh, an increasing environment where we're saying, people are saying more and more, well, church, you can believe what you believe, but don't talk to anybody about it. And you can't live according to what you believe is increasingly happening in our governments, whether they be local, provincial, or federal. It's actually, it's the same concept. So what do we do actually to that note? Here's what we do is we pray. Pray for your governments, that they would honor all people and all freedom of religion. Pray for the Chinese Christians who are getting thrown in prison, whose churches are being bulldozed. Pray for our government that they would recognize actually the human rights that are there actually as a product of Christianity. That's what we need to be doing. But in any king, any ruler wants their people to live out the values of their kingdom. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. And that's actually the same context that this is written in. So the Romans in that same day, as you would have heard if you were here in our, our Revelation series that we just finished, the book of Revelation is saying Caesar is king. And John, the author of Revelation, is saying, nope, Jesus is king. Right? That's basically the point of the book of Revelation. You might think Caesar is king, even if Caesar calls himself a god, but he's not. Jesus is God, and he is king of kings, and that's who we serve. He is our king. But this king, our king, actually also does have a land. Now you say, well, what's the land? You just said the kingdom wasn't a physical place. Well, here's how the land works out in God's kingdom. And the land is not a reference to Israel or Canada or United States. Now we know that there is a land promise for Israel that will be fulfilled at some point in the future. Because God says there's a remnant that he will call to himself from the Jewish nation. But more importantly, in the, new, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament era, Jesus says, my kingdom, my land is wherever my people are. So his land is actually universal. It's around the globe. Wherever God's people are, wherever the citizens of the kingdom are, living out the kingdom values under the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit, we are living out the values and the direction of the king. And he's saying this kingdom that I have created, I have saved and I govern. And then Jesus actually in the book of Luke lays out his, if you want to use political terms, he lays out his platform, his vision statement. 
This is saying, this is, these are the values of the kingdom. This is what this look like, looks like when I rule. And it comes out in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. It's the king has a vision for his kingdom and he says, The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is what he is talking about here. That is what he is calling us to. So what's he saying? Okay, I'm anointed by God to be king and I've been given a job description to proclaim the good news. And then he lays out the half a dozen pieces of what it means to, to proclaim the good news. It's really his platform for rulership. He said, here's what I'm going to do. First of all, he said, it's good news to the poor. It's not just good news to the poor because of helping those who are materially poor. It is that because God's people are always supposed to help those who are materially poor. But it's even better to, those, to all of us who are spiritually poor. Because when we recognize our spiritual poverty, then we can actually embrace the hope that we have in Christ as citizens of his kingdom. And that's when, when that becomes very good news for us because it's in that place of recognizing our spiritual poverty that all of God's promises are, become true for us because we're willing to be open to them rather than saying, I can take care of this. I'm good on my own. We actually recognize, no, I actually need the king in my kingdom and I need to actually put myself in his kingdom. So he says, it's good news for the spiritually poor. He says, uh, this is good news uh, because I'm proclaiming liberty to captives. Well, which captives? You say, well, I'm not in prison. The primary captives in this world are those of us who actually enslave ourselves. How do we enslave ourselves? We enslave ourselves by pursuing our own treasures. We enslave ourselves perhaps by the sins that we've committed or have been committed against us. We enslave ourselves by pursuing anything that is not of God and is a treasure that we pursue because that becomes the object of our worship because that is what we are pursuing. Why do I call it worship? Because anything that gets your time, attention, and your money is what you worship. That's the reality for every one of us. He says, I want to give you freedom from that. I want to give you freedom from that because often we think when we come to Christ that Jesus is there to endorse our priorities. Jesus will not participate in our slavery. That's not why he came. His kingdom is one of freedom. It is one of freedom. And that's not being free. Freedom is actually the joy of increasingly living the life that you were created to live by your creator. That's what freedom is. And that freedom happens when we voluntarily give our lives to the king to become citizens of his kingdom. He says that he frees us from oppression. Well, when we're freed from from captivity, when we understand our spiritual poverty, when we're healed from our blindness, which he talks about as part of his mandate, that's actually when we're freed from oppression because there's so much oppression, there's so much anxiety, there's so many things that we worry about because we're chasing things, we're chasing our treasures. And we worry about, about things like, will I have enough money? What will happen to my children? Who will I marry? Right? Very normal, everyday things. But when we try and control them and their treasures we hang on to, then we struggle. Rather than saying, God, I trust you. You are the king of my kingdom, Jesus. So I want your priorities, not mine. I want your relationships, not mine. I want your income, actually, not mine. I want what you have for me, not what I'm just trying to create for myself and try and get you to bless. And the beauty of it all is that he says, 
that the kingdom is available for everyone. So at the end, he says, I'm proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is a reference to the year of Jubilee, which is an Old Testament uh, concept. And the idea that, that God had for the people of Israel is every 50th year, all property goes back to the original owners. All, all slaves are freed from slavery. So what, he said, what God's plan was, is there will not be generational poverty amongst the people of God. So when he says that this is the year of the Lord's favor, he's referring to the year of Jubilee. And so, what he, so all the people listening to him who are Jews are going, I know what you're talking about. And you're telling us that's today. He's saying that's today. So his claims are audacious. They are bold when he says, this is my mission as the king of the kingdom that I am saving and governing. He says, that's what he is doing. So when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is the most important thing that you could ever see, this is why he says it. It's the most important thing you can ever be a part of. It's the greatest treasure that you could ever find. So we go back to our parables. And in the parables, the kingdom is hidden the treasure is hidden in the ground. You say, well, why would treasure be hidden in the ground? Well, it's hidden in the ground because in that day, your primary bank was the ground. That actually was what people were even taught to do. So there's a, a rabbinic saying that people would have been taught by the rabbis, the teacher. It says, there's only one safe repository for money, the earth. Maybe some of you actually do this or you have friends or grandparents probably who did this is you hide money in the house somewhere because you don't trust the banks. My grandma did this. So my grandma, I'd go over to grandma's house and she would want to give money to us as grandkids. And grandma was about that tall. And this would have been in her 80s and early 90s. She's about this tall and she had this spare bedroom in her house and she'd get in there and then she'd climb on top of her couch. So I'd be standing behind her like, you know, so grandma doesn't fall over because she's 100 pounds and she's four feet tall. And then she would reach up to the folds in the curtain at the top of the curtain and there was a $5 fold, a $10 fold, a $20 fold. And she'd pull down the money she'd want to give to the grandkids. And one time she was getting her curtains cleaned by a dry cleaner and she realized she had to make sure because they were going to take them. And she went, oh no, my money's in there. <laughs> and she had to get her money out of the curtains. Right? That was her version of hiding it in the ground. Well, in the first century, people hid money in the ground. Uh, that's what they did. And uh, that's how things were, were protected was in the ground. So this workman in this parable is, what, is working. He's digging. He is finding things as he's digging. Uh, and he finds treasure. And obviously he's digging and he hits something that's not normal, sees what it is, looks around, obviously covers it up, goes home and has an estate sale. Because he knows the rule of the day, the Jewish rule, it's under Roman law, but the day-to-day things were ruled by the Jews, the Jewish rule was set out that whatever you find in the ground, you keep. That's how things work. This is what the, uh, the rabbinic, the Jewish law said. These finds, so whatever you find, belongs to the finder. If a man finds scattered fruit or scattered money, these belong to the finder. So when I was a kid, we had a saying right along those lines. I didn't realize it was Jewish. So if someone lost candy and you found the candy, you know, as a five-year-old, the line was, Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. I don't know if that was in your background. That was ours when we were kids. Right? That's our way of saying, sorry, too bad. You can't prove it. It's mine now. Right? That was as, as, that's basically the law here. That's happening. 
And so this man finds his treasure, buys a field, because it's so marvelous a treasure. Two simple principles. And every parable will always have very simple things that Jesus wants to teach us or the reader. The first thing is simple. Some people stumble into their treasure. Some people stumble into the kingdom of God. Some people are not looking for it. And something happens and they literally stumble into it. They meet another Christ follower or they have dreams at night about Jesus and they're going, who is this Jesus? I've met people like that here at Willingdon. They just go, I just need to find out because Jesus has revealed himself to me. Some people stumble into it. They're not looking for it. They were not on a treasure hunt for the kingdom of God. They literally stumbled into it. Somehow God revealed himself in his grace and his goodness. And that happens to people. The second lesson is simple as well. That the parable is that that treasure is worth any sacrifice to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is worth any sacrifice to enter the kingdom of heaven. How do you enter the kingdom of heaven? You accept God and his will for your life. He becomes your leader, your forgiver, your friend. You say, Jesus, I recognize that I need you. I want you to rule my life. Forgive my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and I will be a citizen of your kingdom following you for the rest of my days. And Jesus is saying it's worth any sacrifice. There is no sacrifice greater than the benefit that you receive in the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of us here today don't have a relationship with Jesus. We're not in the kingdom. And for you, maybe you've never heard that before. And he's saying whatever treasure you're hanging on to, it's not as good as the treasure and the kingdom that God invites you to. Saying give it up for your own good. Walk in the kingdom you were created to live in. Now, for a bunch of us here, we'd say, okay, we're, we're members of the kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom. But actually, we know we have treasures we're hanging on to. We're having, there's things we're hanging on to that we do not want to give up. And it doesn't take long to figure out what those are because we struggle to trust God with them. We think we need control. We think we need mastery. First time I ran into this situation in my life, I was 19 years old. And I had just become a Christ follower the previous year. And when that happened, then I thought God was taking me on another trajectory, which took me to education. So grew up in Winnipeg. First, I'd gone to Colorado for education. I thought God was calling me to Trinity Western to go to school. And Trinity Western, even all those years ago, uh, was still probably the most expensive school in Canada. Just a lot cheaper than it was today. And so my parents said, well, you know, you go to University of Winnipeg, you can live at home. Like that's like 20% the cost. No, I'm supposed to go to Trinity Western. Okay, so how are you going to do that? Well, when I was a kid, right from young, I loved cars. I'm still a car guy. I love cars. I love fixed up cars. If it's got a motor, I like it. The faster, the better. Uh, That's, you know, one of my passions. So when I was 15, I bought my first car. And uh, so I was ready when I was 16. And I had several cars. But when I was 18... A week before high school graduation, and in Winnipeg, high school graduation, it was all about cars. All my buddies, we all had older cars. We all fixed them up. We were all into cars. So the week prior to my, to, uh, my high school graduation, I bought a five-year-old Z28 Camaro. Now, if you don't know what that is, think of whatever it is that you think an, an 18-year-old would really want, and it's that. Okay, whatever that is in your world, you think about if I was going to be really cool amongst all my friends, what would I want when I was 18? That's what that was. Graduation day, we all come with our cars. 
because there's this big event that went around graduation. And I pull in with my Camaro and all my friends are going, whose car is that? That's mine. Like this was a, no way. Yeah, that's mine. You got to be, no, that's mine. All mine. (laughs) It was a big deal. Beautiful car. I fixed it up. Uh, I still have pictures of it. And uh, so fast forward a year and a half later and God's saying, you know what? You got this treasure in your hand. I'm inviting you to a different treasure. The way to get there is to let go of this one. And I'm like, are you serious? Right, I'm 19 years old. I'm not exactly spiritually mature here. <laughs> I love my car. So I went, okay, I'll put it up for sale. I'm just going to put the price really high. <laughs> it was gone in like two days. I'm like, oh, price wasn't high enough. <laughs> but that was the first time I had to wrestle with that. I went off to Trinity Western, bought my beater Toyota Corolla. Went off to Trinity Western. Uh, But that was the first time I had to deal with that. And it's been many times since. You know when the last time was? A year and a half ago. Two years ago. Pastor Ray gave us a call and said, Hey, what do you think about joining the staff at Willingdon? I'm like, well, you're a thousand kilometers west. I'm here and all my kids are here or east. My parents are east. We have an issue. How about if you move Willingdon to Calgary? How about that? That didn't go very far. So my wife and I are praying and and the kids are praying. We're going, okay, what do we do, Lord? What do we do? And obviously you have the answer. We're here. And God said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Just trust me. And so we moved out here. Now here's part of that. This wasn't part of the promise. A year ago, my middle son, uh, Carter, and his wife, Sarah, called us up and said, okay, we're finished school and uh, we want to do an internship, so I think we're going to apply at Willingdon. And we, we dropped the phone. We went, excuse me? Because they were had applied, they were going to apply in Saskatchewan and stay there. So they're here. Two days ago, I get a phone call from my youngest son, Matthew, and his wife, Taylor. They said, well, we've applied to University of Fraser Valley and we got summer jobs, so we'll be there at the end of the month. <laughs> dropped the phone again. Uh, this is getting hard on our phone. We never knew that that was part of the plan. God never promised us that. So now, obviously, my oldest son, who's in Toronto, is going to have to move very soon. (laughs) He doesn't know that yet, but God will tell him. The place of peace of mind is in the kingdom of God. It's not in holding onto your treasures. It's not in creating treasures of your own making. Folks, this gets very practical. We do this in so many ways, and I'll speak to them just in a few moments. The second way, the second parable says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. One who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So some search for answers. Some people are pursuing God. They're going after God. So we just finished uh, Alpha, which was running for the year for people who have questions about God, people who are searching for God, and during the year, I know of five people in Alpha who entered the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, who said, I want to be a citizen. But they've been searching, asking questions again and again and again. Some people search after it, just like this merchant. So in the first century, when you're searching for pearls, 
Uh, pearls were very rare because you could only get them from the Red Sea, from that area, or you had to go over to Britain. was the place to get pearls. So merchants would scour the different markets looking for pearls. They loved pearls in that area, not just because they were rare, but they were beautiful. They were lovely. They liked to hold them. They liked to feel them. They liked to, they liked to just, they were just such beautiful, lovely things. And what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of heaven is lovelier than the loveliest thing you can think of. It's more beautiful than the most precious thing you can think of. The other thing he's telling us here is it says that the merchant uh, was in search of fine pearls and finding one pearl of great value. What that tells me is he probably found a bunch of other pearls, but they weren't as valuable as the one that he finally settled on. So that means he's looking through things and went, oh, no, not good enough. Nope, Uh, no. You know what I think the principle here is for us folks? I think so often we're looking for treasures and we pick treasures that are, that are not actually worth our time and attention. They're still lovely. They're still beautiful. But in comparison to the kingdom of heaven, they're not the one pearl of great price. I think we settle for good when God invites us to the best. I think we settle for good when God invites us to the best. And there are many beautiful things in this world. There are so many things that God has created when you think about the beauty that we have in knowledge or in art or in music or in literature or the triumphs of the human spirit or in some relationships, we think so many beautiful things. But God says, the kingdom of heaven is better. The kingdom of heaven is more wonderful. And when we settle for something less, we're actually putting a treasure in our own hand that we're pursuing. And we're saying that's better than the kingdom of heaven. That's better than the kingdom of heaven is what we end up doing when we do that. And this this parable says, no, there's one pearl of great price that's worth selling everything for, and that is the kingdom. You see, in both of these parables, everyone who finds the treasure is willing to give up everything to receive the best thing, which is God's kingdom. Willing to give up everything to receive the best thing, which is God's kingdom. Well-known missionary uh, Jim Elliott, about 70 years ago, uh, he decided to go and, and uh, preach the good news to a, to a group of people who had never heard it before. And uh, they were isolated, they were hostile, but he said, I'm going, I feel God's telling me to go. He flew there in a small plane, land on the river, lands, and is actually killed shortly. Prior to him going, this is what he said. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, we dedicated little Matthew Fung here, this gorgeous little, little baby. And Matthew came into this world naked with someone needing to take care of him. Matthew will leave this world the same way. Naked and needing someone to take care of him. That's true for all of us. If Matthew becomes a billionaire between now and then, it's not going with him. Right? Nothing, no human treasure goes with us into the next world. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Jesus is saying, you cannot lose the kingdom of heaven. You cannot lose this treasure. You know, so often in our world, we think the greatest treasure we hold is relationship. Right? That's often what we want. And I know I've prayed for so many people and they're praying for a spouse or, or relational issues. <clears throat> and we say, think it's the greatest thing that we possess. And so often we don't trust God in that area. And I remember Christopher Ewan standing here in February and saying when he became a Christ follower, 
uh, you know, he came out of, out of his same-sex background attraction and he had, he had relationships and he came out of that and he says, well, surely, God, you don't want me to give up these relationships because you don't want me to be alone. And then he started reading his Bible and he said, no, actually, he does want me to give this up. But then he said this and it really stuck with me. He says, I thought I was giving up something good and what I suddenly realized is that what Jesus was giving me was the best. It was so much better. It was the person of Christ and his kingdom. And I realized that is so much better than what I had. And I will trust God for all my relationships. For them to work God's way. You know, if we're dating someone and we go, well, I'm going to marry that person, but I follow Jesus, but they don't. What you're saying is, I treasure that person more than I treasure Jesus And actually that person is now Jesus in my life because they've gotten a higher priority. Because we don't trust God in our relationships. When we don't trust God in our finances, we're saying the same thing. I'm worshiping that, those finances. When we don't trust God in our careers, we're saying the same thing. You can pick the area of life. But we're saying that treasure is greater than who Jesus is. And usually we want Jesus to come and make that treasure work for us. And Jesus says, that's actually not the business I'm in. I'm actually inviting you to a new life, a new kingdom, a new citizenship. Where I rule and I've made it possible for you to have a relationship with me and to live fully in that kingdom under the king who knows all, who resources all. And so, friends, I don't know what the thing is that you treasure. If you say you have no treasure, just think about this. This is, for me, show you my personality. If I want to think what I value, I think, okay, if I want $100 million today, what would I spend it on? That tells me, that immediately pops up what I treasure. And boy, would that be a nice car. But... (laughs) Right? That's what shows up for me very quickly. I go, okay, what would I spend my money on if I had it? What would I just splurge on and it's not God's not saying never have a nice thing what he's saying is you you can have the thing but the thing can't have you right you can have the house but the house can't have you you can have the car but the car can't have you it cannot be your treasure it's just something that God's given you to steward to use for a little while because you're leaving this world the same way you came in and God says the greatest thing you can have is the treasure whether you stumble into it or whether you're searching for it And he's already paid the price for us to receive that treasure, that kingdom. But it may mean you need to let go of something. It may mean there's relationships you let go of or there's, there's security you're letting go of. You're saying, man, I'm in a job, but man, this job is hostile to my faith and I really shouldn't be here, but I'm scared financially, so I'm not letting go. But maybe you need to let go. Maybe you're hanging on to possessions or status. Or maybe your children. Maybe they're saying, God's taking us places. And you're saying, no, you can't go. You have to stay close to mom and dad. Say, okay, kids, follow Jesus. Go wherever he tells you to go. You know what it is. I don't. But I know we all live in this tug of war because we all chase treasures. We all do. We're all the same. We're all people. And we all give up things for those treasures. And Jesus is saying, give up everything so you can receive the greatest treasure of all. And then the beauty so often he gives up, he takes what we've given up and he says, okay, I want you to manage a bunch of this now but I want you to manage it for treasure purposes, for kingdom purposes. To live in the reality of a kingdom ruled by him and the joy and the peace that comes in that place because there's nothing better than being a citizen 
in the kingdom. And that's why it's greater than any treasure you find in a field. It's greater than any pearl. He's saying this is the most lovely, beautiful thing is the kingdom of heaven. Let's stand for closing prayer. If you've never made that decision to, be, to enter God's kingdom, I'm going to pray a simple prayer and you can pray with me and then I will pray uh, for all of us. Father, thank you for sending your son and anointing him king to proclaim the good news. Thank you for his saving work on the cross, for his defeat of Satan to establish his kingdom. So Jesus, thank you for paying the price for my sin, for removing my shame, for conquering my fear. Come and be my king. Fill me with your spirit and show me how to be a citizen of your kingdom every day. And Father, I pray for those here who are citizens of the kingdom, but they're struggling with this tension of what it means to give the treasures that we are chasing and live fully in your kingdom. Father, you know exactly what those things are in our lives. You know what our fears are. You know what our concerns are. You know the places that we want control. And you're a gracious God because you pry our hands open, not because you're a bully or because you force your way in, but you pour your love out on us. And you say, hey, I've saved you. I've called you by name. I speak healing into the pain of your life or your questions, your searching. And in doing so, our hands open up because we trust you more and more. And then sometimes you give us wonderful surprises, like our children moving this way. And so, Father, we celebrate the things that you surprise us with for as long as we have them. So, Father, I pray for those who are hanging on to things. I pray they would give them to you and in return receive the treasure of your kingdom, the joy of your presence, the peace of your guidance, the wisdom in decision-making to live in the greatness of your kingdom forevermore. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Go in God's peace.